0: I don't know about you guys, but uh, whenever there's a microphone in the same room, it's always best practice to assume that everybody's listening. It comes from years of making mistakes. I usually go, check please. When I first started in radio, I ran tapes on Sundays. And uh, unbeknownst to me, they had reseated the uh, reel-to-reel decks, which I hit with a remote control, and it became electrified. And um, I introduced the, uh, the church service on the tape, reached over, hit the button, and got 110 on my thumb. So it was a tough moment. And I sat there for six hours waiting for the bet phone to ring, which never did. And I told my boss, um, here's what happened. And he said, hmm. Okay, well, we'll fix that. By the way, nobody listens at 3 a.m. Ironically, I wouldn't be sitting here right now if uh, they had decided to boot me. Don't forget to mute your mics, gang, before showtime.
1: You can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. And the second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about education uh, in general. (laughs) So we'll get into that in the second hour. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Uh, Mitch, what do we have?
0: Thank you, Alex. Our first question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. LastPass has confirmed that cyber criminals stole its customers' encrypted password vaults which stores customers' passwords and other secrets in a data breach earlier this year. LastPass, you only had one job. Comments? Good, John.
2: So I read the initial statement. I've read the current statement. I'm a LastPass customer. I'm not planning on changing that. Uh, They are, as I understand it, probably the largest password store uh, commercially. And so they're the biggest target. Uh, they if you've got a good secure master password I would change it I wouldn't necessarily rush and change it right now uh, but I would change it this week sometime Uh, I would also start rotating your passwords but this is the world we live in if you're going to use some sort of password manager in the cloud they're going to be huge targets the way LastPass has handled it seems to be the way that I would want a password manager to uh, to react to such a situation and such a breach. So, they have my faith still. Uh, Mitchell?
0: The best things you can do is to be preemptive about any of that and do exactly what John said, rotate your passwords, and never, never, ever uh, use the same password for all of your uh, your uh, uh, programs and sources. It's just a bad idea. It's only a matter of when. And in this particular case, uh, I don't believe that the uh, encrypted
1: information has been de-encrypted, but uh, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, so definitely, um, it doesn't sound like we're out in the open yet, but they're, they're assuming that there's going to be an attempt to brute force the um the process and um i'm gonna change my i'm not going anywhere <laughs> like i'm too I'm too embedded uh i'm you know i feel like this is usually these kinds of breaches the c- chances of it happening twice very close together are pretty low because it usually creates a whole bunch of new rules um uh d- john d- do we know did they say why uh w- w- or how it happened
2: they had uh and i'm not you're asking me something to remember that I read quickly. So uh, they did mention uh, that there was a, a dev environment that they had, as I recall. And uh, it was a cloud store. Their data centers where the stuff is normally kept is uh, not cloud-based. It's local data centers that they have. Uh, and there was uh, somebody got into the cloud version and got some encrypted backups or something.
1: To that and do we nature. think that there was a a human involved but, 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 yes there, there have been people error? fired
2: over this yeah there have been people fired over this
1: i mean w- when i say that you know generally um, you know i i've worked with a couple red teams and they and they get paid basically to break into other companies you know i mean they get paid by that company to break into the company and then tell them how they got there and i said who stopped you and he's like nobody nobody's ever stopped us <laughs> like, like he goes he goes no no one's ever stopped us he goes it's all just a matter of time you just wear it down and, and he goes and i said well what's the easiest way and he goes people people are the easiest way people will do things that will be easy for them and uh they you know um and we you and he goes sometimes you break one person you break down one person then another and then another and then another and you build up trust he goes and then someone in a, in a quick day will make a mistake you know and he goes that's you know that's but you you not, you're not going you don't you don't go right after the person you need to the thing from what you want is a, an email, you know, from someone that they know coming to them, you know, that, that seems innocuous um, to get something that you need. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mark.
3: So what's interesting about this is that you heard a lot about this in different media stories, but did any of the LastPass customers get an email from LastPass explaining exactly what happened?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we all got it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I don't know. I got it. I got an email about it. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty straight, straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John?
2: I was going to say, based on uh, one of the things you were saying, that's the big thing that we do in cyber is education. There is nothing we can do. I can put up all the technology. I can put all the blocks up. But if I have one user that clicks on one stupid email, uh, and I'm not calling the user stupid. They're not. These are really incredible. The ones that are done well, there are two types. There are those that are designed to weed out the the the, the smart folks. And then there are those that are designed to target the smart folks. And those are incredibly realistic. And I've almost been hit several times by those. So just and, be careful.
1: And this isn't, you know, what what hit, um, what most likely hit, you know, this company is not a, a phishing operation where they kind of do an email that's kind of right. This is a group of people Thinking really hard about one thing and people who are smart at doing it. So, um, this is going to happen. You know, I think that that, that, is, the, that is the case. Go ahead, Mitchell. I
0: was just going to give a, a tip. One of the best ways to avoid a phishing scam is if you get a note from your bank or your credit card or your, one of your utilities, never, ever, ever type the link that's uh, in the email. Always go out to your account. Uh, directly on the uh, uh, on the internet and uh, log in like you normally would. Uh, that eliminates the possibility that they were pretty sophisticated in how they did it. But if you look at some of those uh, very appropriate, not appropriate, uh, very uh, convincing emails they get, they look right. They've got the right logos and things on it. But if you ever check the uh, the links, um, it's generally not the link to the uh, to the power
1: utility or whoever it is that's doing it. So be careful out there. Yeah. And I, and I think that one of the things that, um, uh, that I am constantly trying to do is, is educate people around me. So if my, mostly my kids teachers to not copy everybody like there's, there's a, blind ccs are a good thing <laughs> you know like and and let's not send everybody's email to everybody else uh, you know i try to explain to them that's like coughing in the middle now that we have all this covid i can say this is like coughing in the middle of the room like you know you're you're um, connecting everybody together with so if anybody's email goes down it, it affects all of us and so you know it gets caught caught up in this go ahead john
2: so I was reviewing their blog post, and I was incorrect. It wasn't a, 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 a employee, although I do believe some employees did get re- released from this. But uh, it was a they had a security incident in August, and they used credentials that was cracked during that uh, breach to grab the re- uh, the data from this breach. Got
1: it. So it was it was a cascade, yeah. And that's the you know, that's always the danger. The good news is, I mean, if you do, if you use LastPass, I've been using LastPass for a long time. If you use it the way I use it, you know, I will, it's not that hard. As I go to new sites, I'm just going to say I want to update my password and it'll do it all pretty automatically. And I just have it build hashes. I don't know. I have to admit, I'm very dependent on LastPass. There's only a handful of sites that I have that I can type in. Otherwise, I just need to type into LastPass and, and get it in. So, um, but it'll, it'll be interesting. All right, uh, let's go to the next question.
0: From Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland, thinking about replacing my action cam. Have all the GoPro-style mounts, et cetera, but wondering about a DJI Action, Oslo Action, or Pocket. Any
1: thoughts? And Merry Christmas to all at office hours. You know, I don't know that many people who have actually... So I've heard a lot of good things about the the DJI, um, you know, action cams, that they're the future. And one of the things that GoPro is having trouble with is the is just that they're having lots of operational issues, you know, so they, they haven't built, in my opinion, a, a solid camera since about six or seven, (laughs) like they just keep on trying to add feature. You know, the last one I think I bought was a six and I was like, Oh, it's okay. But it, it, they didn't fix the underlying problems with the GoPro, which is the interface, the stability, the heat dissipation, all those things still seem to be problems that are, that are getting worse, not better. So I think GoPro is in a kind of a, a, a complicated situation um, the pocket, the, I believe that the, you know, if I, if I were going to get one and I was already using GoPro stuff, I think I'd probably lean towards the Action. I think the Action is going to be the Osmos and the Pocket, I believe, have the gimbal. And I think that the Action is probably the one, if I'm correct, um, I'm, you know, but uh, that's probably the one I'd, I'd probably look at. Next question.
0: Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas, asking, Is there any monitor to rival or even come in a close second to the guy Cochran extolled LG? Here we go. LG Uh, (laughs) 43UN700B 43-inch. The quad. The quad. The thing. Um, You know, it has all kinds of stuff on it. It's $546.99 at Amazon for screen, picture-in-picture. Go ahead, Mark.
3: So these are great monitors. I haven't come across anything that's better than them for splitting into four-way very easily. Um, They're... The only thing I would say is I wish they'd make a little bit larger ones, so the multi views would show up a little bit bigger when you're playing using them in that format. The one downside I've found is that they, when you start to use multiple inputs at the same time, sometimes the things will only connect to them at 30 hertz. So that can be a downside. For most of the stuff I'm using it for, it's fine.
1: Are you? Um, and, and how do you control the switch from four to one or? So
3: it's all built into the I don't have it right next to me, but there's no remote
1: control capability though.
3: No. It's just right in the clicker. Okay. So in the clicker, like a PIP button, there's a button called PBP PIP. Mm -hmm. And then a menu pops up and you just tell it what you route tell it the routings and how many you want. You can go to two vertical, two horizontal, all you could do four or you could just do one. Got it yeah, I don't, I don't think you're going to
1: find anything at that price point. You can also, the only other thing to look at is there's lots of quad. Um, you know, there's a lot of tools that, that are made by everyone from, uh, you know, Monoprice and others that, that will take four HDMI inputs. And then you can just hit buttons and go, go from one to the next for a couple hundred dollars. And so you can turn any monitor into a quad using one of those tools. And sometimes they actually have that, a better performance than what, what's in that monitor. So, um, you know the 43 is actually kind of a difficult size for me i don't know what to do with that <laughs> so um although i have thought about building the one thing i looked at with that with that monitor was building it out as a um as a teleprompter so i'd have be able to very quickly switch between different inputs that were going into it and go into a quad or whatever and and just you know do a um a maker pipe kind of project and we've done really big ones we had a the biggest teleprompter that we did that was well, the biggest teleprompter was about 70 inches, but the the second biggest one that we used regularly was a 55 inch. And it was a 55 inch monitor that literally just came out of a case. which <laughs> just, just just rose out of a case. Um and uh had a we had a um we vacuum packed a um 920 at the time, a Logitech 920, right into the glass right behind the glass. And so there wasn't any, you know, real telepromptery stuff on the back end. It was just the that monitor there. And it was it was really effective. Um, and so, you know, big, big ones are really cool. And the little one that I'm using right now, I'm using a little eye can isn't enough. You know, I kind of get some eye, eye contact with it, but it's not, it's not big enough. So I'm looking at big, building a bigger one that I can use. Go ahead, Mark.
3: So the one thing I would say about the 43 inches is that we have a lot of them at that size for the engineers and architects. Because once you go over that size, it just becomes a stretch. You start to have to move your head back and forth. Uh, Forty-three and below seems to be within the peripheral vision of everyone, so you can still use it to draw on. Um, The idea about using it as a teleprompter is great because now you could have four different bits of information. You could have a clock. You could have the multi-view. You could have you know any notes that you're trying to send to the person.
1: Yeah, so I think it'd be good for some settings. I think the problem you'd end up with having is that at times you wouldn't be getting eye to eye contact because you're. The camera would theoretically be right at the crosshairs of all of those monitors, so so you might be looking a little off, but but it would get the eye contact pretty darn close. Uh, next question.
0: Next question from Douglas Carmichael. I've heard of lidar scans used to pre-visualize stage designs for concert tours. Would you use an iPhone 14 Pro Max with Reality Scan, or would you use a Leica or similar device? Uh,
1: Leica. Like <laughs> so you, you know the stage is too big. You're walking around and you'll get errata. Um, this is the three sixty, the the blk three sixty, um, and this would be the starting point. So for our smaller stages and venues, you, you could probably do it with this relatively effectively. And this is just, it's not. I, I say it's relatively inexpensive, <laughs> but at, at re, the retail on this is twenty grand. And so the, um, but this is the starting point of what what you would use at a venue. And I use these at venues. The, the reason I ha- I own this is to go to venues. <laughs> so I, so I go to venues with this and I scan out that space i know that it doesn't have to be i'm not doing architectural level scanning i'm pre vising a, a location that i have to be within plus or minus an inch or two you know i'm not typically building into a building or laying out rebar or doing anything else like that i'm i'm literally you know i just need to know where my truss is going to go so this is effective for that <clears throat> sorry about that um the the ones that you're going to start using when you're doing real production are going to be stuff things like the Faro 350, um, the uh, ZNF. Um, those are those are going to be much. They, they have much longer range. They're much more accurate, um, and, uh, and in some cases faster. Or the bigger Leica. The, Leica makes another one of these that's faster and more accurate um, than than these. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mark.
3: So um, you know, we really wanted to get into this and bring it in house, but we found that. The cost of the equipment, you end up having to go rent it because you just can't. We In our business model, we can't afford. The clients just won't pay us that additional money to do it that way. They want us to pull the tape, measure, and go measure everything. The one thing about trying to do it with an iPhone, we found was not so much the walls might be too far away because you only get accuracy up to about 12 feet away with an iPhone, but we found it was the ceilings. You'd literally have to – if the ceilings are any more than 15 feet high – you're just going to lose it. So what we do is end up going to a service and having the service do it because they give us the BIM model, and that just seems to work a lot more efficiently for us. Yeah,
1: good, Mitchell.
0: That uh, like a, I guess it was the like Leica you were holding there, Alex. How does that? Uh, how do you manage that when you're doing your scan? Is that a yeah. handle on the top of it?
1: No, no. This is this is just the carrying case, um, which is really. It, there are parts of it that are really well-designed and parts of it that are horribly designed. Like, you just keep on going, who thought of this? Um, so, it. Um, so this is... Uh, um, so, the, the, you take this off, and so you... Find a place to put it. This is what it looks like here. And it has a special um, receiver on the bottom, and you put it on a tripod, and you just set it on that tripod. You lock it onto the tripod, and then you... Um, uh, in the next week or two, I'm going to do a after hours where we just go scan something, so you'll get to see it. So we'll uh, stay tuned for that. But um, and and then you, put, you just push this little button and it starts to go. Now you can control it from an iPad. An iPad it has a Wi-Fi um, thing, and you can control it with an iPad. I never do because it takes too long. So I get it setting set up on the iPad, but then I just you just push the button and just keep moving. Um, the, that's the upside. It's really fast and easy to, to cover a lot of space, and you don't need anybody with any technical skill. How much time does it give you to get out of the shot before it starts scanning? Uh you got a couple seconds and remember that it you as long as it's not pointed right at you it only sees one one plane at a time. You know so it so if, if it's sitting sideways to you it's going to take a while before it gets to you <laughs> like it's, so, you know, it's not Yeah we see you going <laughs> Yeah yeah you, you, you don't worry about it. or you just stand sometimes I just stand there and I just stand on the blind side on the blind you know on, on a blind side and I just stand there and go around it um, especially if you're in a place that you're afraid there'll be wind or there'll be people someone might come and run and grab it you know you you um you tend to just stand next you can stand right next to it it's not a problem um and then um it takes about five minutes per scan you know and um and so uh the the real painful part of that scanner specifically is most scanners just save it to an sd card this one scans it to an internal drive and then you have to use the ipad to pull those scans off one at a time and it is it's three or four minutes of scan to pull Ouch. it off that little guy. And it's so and it's and and the the software we used to use recap to do it, which was much easier. Um, but the software now to do it is this goofy, I don't know, some goofy software that someone wrote. And it is horribly buggy and really like you're just like so that's that's why i own it i was able to buy it used from someone who just couldn't take the software <laughs> just, like just was like just like i can't do this anymore because when they when they started it they had this great partnership with autodesk evidently that ended and so they have to have some way to do it And they have this external party do it and it's just a disaster you know um and so so that's the downside and there's not really any other way into it I, that i know of um and then you'll end up bringing it back into recap to to realign everything, you know, to make it all work. And so, um, as a, you know, for what I bought it for and, and as a, um, uh, a quick way to grab onto venues, it's great. <laughs> you know, it does, it, you know, I could never afford, as Mark was talking about, you know, these pharaohs start, start at, I don't know, 30, 35,000 and go up, you know, from there. Um, and I have a friend who has a pharaoh, um, who owns one and, uh, Mark, you should talk to him because he's, he's now, uh, he, just sold his company so he's thinking about what he's doing Love to, yeah 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 we should put you guys together because he's um he 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 has a pharaoh and he knows what to do with it (laughs) so so he's probably one of the top surveyors in the world and so um anyway so the uh um and we're going to get him on um on to uh uh on office hours to talk about lidar so stay tuned for more more conversations i'm hoping to get him on next month um but uh it's just him settling his schedule after he has uh, is, is gone, gone freelance, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, anyway, um, next next question.
0: Bob Sturnevin from San Antonio, Texas is in with this question. Has anyone used LiDAR photogrammetry to build a 3D model of a stage and then print it out with a 3D printer for a presentation? If so, what size is big enough to
1: use for planning? Since the printers are still so slow, do you feel it was useful? So we've definitely printed out things that we've, we haven't printed out whole stages, but we've definitely printed out like we're going to do this little studio and we'll scan that, scan that out. And and a lot of times, you know, we'll scan it's, it's a mixture. We'll scan the space so that they recognize the space and then we will put the set into it and then we've printed it. Now, I admit that most of the time we printed it um, no bigger than, I think, 10 inches because that was the size of our scanner. <laughs> our scanner could do 10 inches. And so that was the, yeah, we, we just want to do all in one piece. We did think about the potential of, you know, printing it out in pieces and then putting it back together. And just it just felt like it would take, as you said, too long. Printing the set overnight was a day. You know or fourteen hours I think was this was this print time so um that wasn't too bad um the The thing that I think is more interesting that we have done also, and one of the reasons I got the scanner to do more of it is um, is doing virtual walkthroughs. so you know the other thing that we've done is used um, uh, we we actually used gears um, this was a while ago, but the Samsung gears for a long time um, to basically allow you to walk around inside of a space um, you know or look around in a space that is far more effective because you really get it at your size like you're looking around and you can put a set in there you can put designs in there you can make them look like it and they feel like they're standing in the middle of the room or the front of the room or the back of the room and they can make a lot better decisions i, I think that when people design theaters they don't they don't sit in the front seats when they,
4: <laughs> cause
1: they then they'd realize that no one should sit down there right, go ahead mark
3: so you really have to put this in perspective. When we started doing rendering walkthroughs that would take two minutes for a presentation to try and win a project, they would take a week to render. It might take two or three weeks to build them. So you, if you're coming in from that historic perspective... It's just going to take a while for these things to print. And we print out sections of them. It takes overnight to print a section. And then you, you you kind of glue or Velcro these sections together so that the client can see. You take the roof off. They see inside the building. You may take the second story off or the third story off, and they can start to see the layers of the building. You just have to plan for it months ahead of time.
1: And one of the companies that we that I worked with in the past, they actually had an open room. And this will sound crazy. I think it was about a 30 Thirty foot by thirty foot, so ten meter by ten meter, roughly room that that you could walk around in. And they were using the Hololenses, um, you know, for for that. And you could kind of move around a little bit in there. And they they had it all set up, and they were showing construction sites that had been scanned. And this, and some of these construction sites were getting scanned every week, or you know, I, I don't think it was going any faster than that. But they could walk through, and they could overlay their designs with with the re, with with the um, as built. You know, so that they could see if it was going the right direction, because they're they're making a lot of they had a lot of construction sites all at one time. <laughs> so, so that was that was something that, that's kind of interesting. So, I think that you can do a couple different things there. Uh, next question.
0: Talalik Lopez Waterman in Norfolk, Virginia. I've been turning the Stream Deck Plus into an encoder for moving lights with the ETC EOS. Here's where I am stuck. Is it possible to receive OSC data in the BitFocus companion? It does not see the generic OSC has, uh, it does not seem that the generic OSC has this
1: option. Is there another way? I don't think that I, um, I don't have a direct answer for this one, but I think that what you what you want to look at is, you know, a linkage. So the temptation is always to have, uh, and and it gets tricky. But it's the same way we we use the ATM is that you find something that will talk to the to the etc. You find something that's going to talk to, you, you know, and, and it's probably not a direct OSC connection um, for this. You're going to find some. You got to find some piece of software that's going to be. A, uh, a translator you know i'm, I'm going to get this like like for instance um, we might use touch osc for other things not not this but to grab onto mid you know data and put it back into osc um uh, and so i think that there's i think that there may be some ways that you could find a piece of software in between but you <laughs> i feel like talc would have already thought of that so he's asking us a question there but but that's my that's my guess uh, next question
0: Next question in from Lois Richter in Davis, California. USB means universal, right? How and why did USB get created? Two, what versions have existed? What do they look like and what are they called? And three, is it safe to plug an older plug into a newer port? I always thought if it fits, it's safe to use. (laughs) Go ahead, Dave.
4: Well, Wikipedia has a pretty comprehensive entry uh, for USB and it, a lot of contributors to it. Right now, there's 14 different kinds of connectors. And I think of the people on the panel here are probably like me. You have a whole box of these things, many of which are suspect even. They've worn out. Um, there are about four generations of USB, but it was originally created to have a universal standard everybody would adopt. And then, of course, as with everything tech, uh, the marketing guys said, "Well, we we have a unique case, and we need a different kind of connector." And then they would convince people to have cables that are built for those unique connectors. For instance, on little handy cams for your your average uh, person doing movies for, for home movies, uh, the cameras were so tiny that you needed a tinier connection, and putting the big block in there was just a waste of space. So over the years uh since 1996 when it was invented or at least agreed to um, a lot of usb has been used but now we have so many versions of it four iterations of its capabilities when they started putting power through it uh that complicated things quite a bit with regard to data transfer and all the rest and each out every time we had an outing from one to one and a half to two to three and now four, uh, we're getting faster speeds. Uh, the chips inside them that do the processing for data are much more efficient. And uh, even there's encryption uh, starting to be put into these things. So uh, it was meant to be a standard, um, but as with everything in tech, it depends now on what kind of USB you're doing. Now, you asked about, can you plug an old cable into um, a newer port? And yes, you can. You'll only get the capability of the cable itself, not the port. So for instance, we're all at USB-C now, which is often referred to as four, um, you can get a lot through a USB-C connector. But if you had the big four block uh, from USB 1, it's not going to fit. So you're safe there. But if you have a USB 1 connection, you put a USB 2 or 1.5 cable into it, it'll operate like a 1. So they deprecate kind of nicely. But now, of course, with competing standards for video and uh, audio through these things, uh, it's it's now going to be uh, USB-C 5 pretty soon. So it's going to get even more complicated. So it's still safe to put a newer plug into an older port, uh, but uh, the versions may never stop. The USB is not universal. Go ahead, Mitchell.
0: Yeah, common error is a USB-C and a Thunderbolt. And uh, the way to tell a Thunderbolt from a USB-C, uh, they look almost identical. Is if it has the lightning bolt on it. I'm holding my hand so you can get a focus on it. There it goes. And uh, this case, it's an OWC, and it says four on it, which means Thunderbolt four. But a USB-C
1: could look just like that. And I think the multiple formats of this are is really underlines the absolute insanity that they were made a standard uh, for the EU. <laughs> Like it's just it was just like we're going to take something that doesn't really work and oh by the way it's really old and everyone's already kind of moving to it anyway just to kind of just tie up all the loose ends but and then we're going to now make it law so that now we can't do anything new it was just, just people who don't you know digital children should not be making laws it's like running around it's like running around with knives um anyway uh, next question
0: uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas. The Logitech Brio has a ludicrous removable mount. How do you get it off? Has the Insta360 Link knocked the once lofty Brio and the Huddlecam HD off their thrones as best-of-class webcams? Go
1: ahead, Mark.
3: So, yes. What Paul's talking about in this image here, if it's on the screen, is a rubber mount that mounts... the is pushed into a quarter-twenty. So you really have to give it a good tug to separate the two, and then to, then you'll be able to use the quarter-twenty that's on the bottom of that camera. I,
1: I do not understand why they didn't just make a rubber, like, um, something you could screw in and out. It just, it just seems like... Uh,
4: Dave? Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll answer the second part of that question, and that is that I, I believe that the Insta360 is actually just leading all the other manufacturers in a certain direction. Uh, the 360 with its capability of snapping to other shots, Uh, to be able to have it follow you around and also take signals through the software. And as you often mention, Alex, uh, being able to sort of drive the thing from a second monitor uh, is taking all of the webcams, uh, uh, throwing down a challenge almost to them, that there's more capability you could build into these things, not just better picture. And maybe if real zoom lenses were added to these things, then they'd be ubiquitous. We wouldn't have to have huddle cams or all these other models, there'd be one or two and they all work pretty much the same way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I it'll be interesting to see um, where they go, you know, with, with where they're at. I, I think that I don't know if they need to change the lens right now, but what they, what I'd love to see is a one inch sensor and an HDMI output. <laughs>
3: like, you know, like yeah. if
1: they just, if they yeah. just took, if they just did that next, like the next step, mechanical zooms is a thing. Like it's not a, Like that would be really hard to do affordably, but
4: and they're heavier too. Yes, yeah.
1: Yeah. But I think that, but just adding that little bit and making a hundred dollars more would be worth it. I mean, you know, or Mm -hmm. even you know, if if even it would, even though there's other cameras at five hundred dollars, one that looked like that would probably take over because of the utility. And now the big thing is, is that what we'd hope to see is some kind of API, you know, which um, we are going to at the beginning of this year. In mass requests from them, <laughs>
2: you yeah. know, so
1: but but I will say that the um, they are I will say that unequivocally that's the best web camera under five hundred dollars. Like it is it is if, if as a web camera USB web camera it is the best. I have th- I mm-hmm. bought three of them at retail.
4: <laughs> like it would be I, nice know, to have a a little mini HDMI on the back. It wouldn't be that much in terms of taking space, but would well, it, would then, it make it a hotter camera? Would it have to process maybe, more for yeah, HDMI? I
1: don't, I don't know if it would. I think that I think that the the main thing is is that it would tie into all these other things that we're doing. It's it's just a little bit of a cluster to to um, to try to get it connected, uh, get three or four of these connected to a computer. You want a switcher at some point. Um, and it seems like that would be... But again, I don't know what they're going to do. But I, I don't think it'll make it that much hotter. I think that it would just size issues, cost of materials. You always have to remember that you take the cost of material and you got to multiply it by like five. Of like, mm-hmm. that's how much it's going to add to the retail and end product. And so so that's the other... I mean, that was this little little side note. That was the trick to um, Firewire. It was that Apple was part of the consortium that developed Firewire. They put it into all the computers. They got all the cami manufacturers to... Um, yeah. The camera manufacturers yeah. to adopt it, and then they pushed a $2 per unit um, royalty cost. Now, yes, it's, people thought that Apple was insane because what it did is it increased the cost of a PC by $50 if they wanted to add FireWire. Um, and the problem that they, so then no one did it, but that what that meant was if you were an AV person, you had to buy a Mac because you couldn't, you know, and that... And And that was Apple's attention. (laughs) It was not not to get PC manufacturers (laughs) to pay them. It was to get them to not install Firewire um, so that that they could could own that market. Um, Go ahead, John.
2: So there is one thing the Insta is missing that I kind of need as a security professional, and the Brio has, and that's an infrared sensor. Uh, It's missing that, and that makes it less useful for my job. Uh, because, uh, I'm having to set up authentication for users using facial recognition and you can't do that with the Insta. You can do that with the Brio.
1: Interesting. I didn't even know you could do that with the Brio. It's a, it's an interesting uh, feature there. Yeah. I, I, I didn't, didn't even know that existed. So that's good. That, that's interesting. So it's, and, and how do you, how do you get access to the, to the infrared in the Brio?
2: Uh, you just turn, uh, so if you've got a computer with Windows Hello, uh, it will use the, you just plug in the USB and it automatically syncs up. It knows it. it's there. Hmm. Interesting. It it's, uh, shines a little red light, it mm-hmm. scans your face and then op- unlocks the computer. Interesting. That's really interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, That's very
5: cool.
2: Been my deep dive the last couple of months trying to figure out how to make that work.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah but but to get back to Paul's uh, question yeah I think that right now the link is the, is the one to beat and hopefully we're going to see companies compete with them because if, if we get to see a little bit of an arms race here now it takes those things take a long time um but uh, but it's definitely uh, pretty amazing now next question
0: Craig McFarlane from Boston Massachusetts asks what can be learned from the way Reddit does AMA sessions to improve office hours with Mukana
1: I hate the way reddit does ama sessions so so like like they just like i can't go to them they make me so upset so so i don't i don't know if uh i don't know how much we'll learn from it uh if you have suggestions that of things that you like from it maybe i'm missing something but um i i have uh uh and i'm probably just too old for it i i go into reddit every once in a while but it it doesn't take me very long before i get enough irritated enough that i leave so I, i don't know if i'm a good maybe i should be paying more attention to it but it um it's given me a lot of ideas i think it's given me a lot of ideas for makana but not in a way that i'm going to take things from And it. it mostly tells me what i don't want to do so um yeah uh, anyway so but but if you have if you think that there are things that are better definitely let us know um, next question
0: paul terry wallace is back from austin texas asking explain how open ai's chat gpt
5: is taking off like a rocket ship how do we keep up good john ChatGPT has really been a masterclass in marketing and low-end disruption this year. They came out with a good enough product that the current incumbents can't match. Google can't just put out a chat product because they're dependent on ad revenue, and it needs whatever they put out needs to be accurate enough that billions of people will rely on it. And ChatGPT is good enough. Uh, They timed the market during a slow news part of the year uh, so that people have plenty of time to play with it and use it. They created a product that triggers all the reward centers in your brain that The novelty center as well as your dopamine uh, to give you a quick hit when you do use it so it's fun to use and they made it easy and normal for regular people to start playing with ai which is something that you know the dolly image generators and that sort of thing just haven't been able to do and all that together just makes it super viral yeah go ahead nigel
6: yeah i mean i think there are much better versions just they're not going to be available to the public they're available at a price and they're controlled and uh, they don't necessarily need the publicity um, but I think Jet yeah, this this solution particularly uh, created the opportunity. I think they did a great job uh, commercializing it and getting uh, people's interest in it. I will tell you one of the things that I think drove this was fear. I think this was um, that's what makes it such a great news story because it's everybody's scared of what this was going to be, and this to some extent proved everything. Uh, but I think there are plenty of good options out there if you're willing to pay. They're just doing the free to uh, create publicity for them. Um. I go John
2: I'm gonna tackle the I think what John and Nigel has said has been good uh, for uh, addressing the first part of the question the second part of the question is how do we keep up and I don't think we do I think we tread water at this point it unless you're an AI researcher or I don't I even don't like the term AI it's machine learning at this point I really think that unless you're engrossed in that 24 7 as part of your career you're not going to keep up my point my thought is you just enjoy it find what works for you and use it i like chat gpt because i can have it write me cr- incredibly interesting stories uh about plots and characters i care about so that's what i do
1: you go ahead mitchell
0: It's interesting to see how people are using it and what they're asking it to do, and I'm sure those metrics exist out there. But uh, what John just said, uh, the idea that it can write a story, that's what I think is capturing people's minds because everybody wants AI. It isn't really AI. It's a search engine, but it's a clever adaptation of it.
1: And they do have a script written one that was announced yesterday. So, there's, so that, that is coming out where they're uh, playing around. It's designed to work with the script writers. Um, it's not ChatGPT, but it's based on the same technology. And, and so you're going to see more of that. I, I, just to give you a sem- sample of some of the ChatGPT stuff, and because we're talking about AI, we've got a little time this morning now. The, um, uh, um, I, I will say that I find like mid-journey is, is really fun. Like I really enjoy it, um, and uh, like I I um, have make, been making. Just as an aside, I, I you know people have seen me play around with uh, Mid Journey Like I uh, um, let's see, this is uh, let's see this is minions in uh, in Roman times. So I asked for minions in Ro- Roman times. I, I put minions. This is fine. My God, <laughs> I got something completely different. I started making Santa Claus uh, things for Christmas for everybody. So this is Santa Claus. On, I t- tweeted this out. Um but my you know, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I said santa Claus as a as a stealer. <laughs> I got something completely different um and the reason I show you this is that this is a this is really um uh a lot of where you know here's someone had asked we were doing this in after hours of of, of crossing the Delaware with minions um the The main thing is is that all of these things are really, really great for enjoyment, and what you want to do is learn how they how they work and how they and where they're going to be useful for you, exactly what was said before you know, I play with them a lot. I mean, I put in right when you asked this question, I asked chat GPT, I said, ask 10 questions about HDR, make up the asker name and location. (laughs) Literally just make up a, make it, make it up. And it says, um, uh, hi, I'm Chloe from London and I'm trying to decide whether I'm trying to decide between an HDR and non HDR monitor for my computer. What are some key differences between the two that I should consider before making my decision? Or, um, uh, the hi, I'm Rachel from Singapore, and I'm trying to decide between TV. That's yes, the same, same, but, but it talks a lot about monitors. You know, it's decided that can you describe the difference between HDR and Dolby Vision? <laughs> like it's, it's, it's asking, you know, questions that could definitely be used, and it just adds the names and, and puts it all together. Um, now, it's not something we're going to use for this because we got plenty of questions, but it is something that um, when you think about uh, a producer sitting there for a show, when you want to do T V ones, uh what you don't realize they write most of those producers write most of those questions. <laughs> so so, you know, and uh and so being able to sit there and I was just thinking about being able to sit there and chat GPT and just drive out hundred questions, pick out the ones you want stick them in, saves the the, assist, the producing assistant a lot of time. Um, go ahead, John.
2: Oh yeah, uh, thank yeah. you. Um yeah. I forgot what I was gonna say, my apologies. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell.
0: We should do a show where the ChatGPT does the question asking and then we have another ChatGPT that does the answer and we just sort of sit back and watch what happens.
2: <laughs> we should do that with one of these. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um it's dueling ChatGPTs. I have had I've have had ChatGPT I say describe how this would look and it gives me a long description and then I cut and paste it and put it into mid-journey and it gives, me, it gives me an image. And so, so, I did, you could, so you could do it. And then most of my cooking right now is an experiment. Most of my cooking has been driven from, um, so I I haven't gotten around to the Manhattan clam chowder, but I had it make me a, a rainy day soup and I made Osh soup. And I just keep on asking, chat GPT, just give me a recipe for this. And it just gives me a recipe and I go make it. And so far it's been, it's been, it plays it safe but it's been right on. You know, I I usually the only thing I change in the recipes is I usually put a little more spice into it than than what it does. It's it's playing it it's it's playing it safe. Right, go, ahead, John.
5: My, I would encourage everyone to not just play with ChatGPT and these sort of tools, but try to figure out what's something in my job that I can ask this computer to do in a way that I can describe it clearly enough for the computer to generate it. Uh, and then, then you'll see how it works and some of its limitations. Something that you've already mastered yeah. yourself, especially. I recently asked it to build out a training scenario for our call center, and it did a really great job. And in 15 seconds, I had it publish out something that would have taken me 20 or 30 minutes. I had to change three sentences on it, and then I sent it out to the team and, and said, "A robot did this."
1: And that's and and this is a a uh, one of the key things is is it's really important. The first thing I do in chat, I probably do it a couple, a couple times a day, is I I ask it questions about things I already know the answer. And because the reason I'm doing that is I'm calibrating uh, what it, how accurate it actually is because it's actually not accurate all the time. And that's what makes it dangerous is that if you take it as, oh, it, it actually knows what this is, it doesn't. And so um, so you'll by searching things that you already know very well, you'll see the cracks in what it does. And so then you can take everything with a grain of salt. So it handing you something right now is not particularly accurate. It's gonna get a lot more accurate. It's going to, I mean, the big exciting thing about this is it's shortening the distance between when you think of something and when you can create it. You know, And I think that um, that's going to be really fascinating. People being able to, I, we've talked about it before and we're going to talk about AI next week for an hour. And we're going to keep on talking about it once a month because we have to pay attention. I've never seen a technology kind of suddenly just stand up. What happened is, is all these folks I think have been working on this for a decade or more and they were afraid of putting it out and open and mid journey and open AI started running down the field. So all these people that have have all this research now are getting forced to just start releasing it or they're going to get fall behind. Like you look at mid journey. I mean, I don't know where Dolly is right now, but mid journey has six and a half million members in their discord. It is the, it is. And, and I, and I will argue that the only reason they got there was because Dolly delayed there released to the public so as people saw dolly and dolly too got really excited but they couldn't get access to it and then just people like me just went straight to mid-journey <laughs> like, and, and so i'll pay for it i want to play with this and i think that, that was the you know that's what happened there yeah go ahead dave
4: i'm gonna lean on the last part of the question how do we keep up as with anything that sort of is unknown and mysterious and how it operates, uh, we're cautious about adoption and we're cautious about what use it is in our daily lives. And right now it's fun and it's interesting. And as uh, Nigel said, a little fearing. And I I think back to when microwave ovens first came out, uh, some people were quite afraid of them because it was mysterious how it did what it did. Magical. And it wasn't until manufacturers of food started packaging whole dinners or putting things in a way that would, would accommodate a microwave oven, uh, people began to become more comfortable with it. And then of course, our lives changed and became faster and we needed to keep up by having microwave ovens to fill in the gaps. I think chat is an example and it's going to get integrated into software and it'll be more and more invisible after we've learned to come to terms with it. But I'm with you. Every month, we should actually have some sort of discussion about where it's where it's having an impact, and just keep abreast of what's going on because that's the way that we understand everything, little by little.
1: And and the way to to not do it is probably to resist it. <laughs> like sit there and go, you know, this is not going to work, or I'm not going to be part of this, or I'm not going to like. That's that usually doesn't work very well because the chances of it getting slowed down are pretty low. Um, you know, this is the it's you know there's a certain level of inevitability because there won't be enough regulation coming out that will slow it down to enough, you know, like it's when, when Napster came out, it was never gonna be the same. Like there was no yeah. way to put that, you know, once someone, Nick modeler. mentioned it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, once you open up a Pandora's box, there, there's no putting it back into the box. You know, you have to figure out what you're doing with it. And, you know, I've jumped from one industry to another every two to three years for my entire life. You know, like I literally have, have just done a different thing, you know, and I just look at it going, okay, what am I gonna do with this? And I immediately kind of dive into it. Um, I think that, you know, looking at how you can, again, how you can harness that. Um, I think that the real, one of the things people talk about is copyright. I don't think the problem really is. I personally don't think the problem is infringing on copyright and then reselling something. I think the real problem is, is that individuals being able to create everything they want without having to buy anything. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, you know, they, they, they pay for the AI. And a good example is what I showed you just, just there. i made a whole bunch of them. Um, I, uh
4: you don't need to buy a Christmas I card, you can make your own. I
1: made yeah. It's yeah. not just that I made a Christmas card. I made a Christmas card that is for each I'm sending them all out today, but I made a Christmas card for my family. Every one of them got a different Christmas card that is hilarious and them. You know like it's mm-hmm. it's Santa Claus like I sent I have some friends that fly airplanes and I sent I one of, you know, Santa in a jet, you know, and, and then I have my, my dad's a lawyer. So I sent mm-hmm. Santa as a judge, look at him, he's naughty and nice. My mom is from Arizona. So I put it in him, he's got a coach, he's driving a, a stage coach with, with, uh, um, in the, in the Sonora desert. And, and, you know, so there's like these, these, you know, I was able to make these funny, that was my, my theme was Santa. But in a couple hours, I was, and it wasn't like, I just did it. I just typed in all these things. I worked it Mm -hmm. because I had to figure out how it was gonna and keep on choosing. It has a lot of trouble with glasses and um, Mm -hmm. uh, glasses and hands. So you have to kind of work. You know, you're working the solution. But I mean, if you look at like the um, my uh, see here, like my my son's really into biotech, and so I am. uh, let's see here just to give you an example so he's really in a So so Santa doing like a, working on a dna sequence and so there you go mm-hmm. there's there's mm-hmm. you know and you know you sit here and create these things and what i what i really realized i got the hands right by the way but not the, the the glasses are a little messed up um but the uh but anyway the 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 thing is is that people build it being like if i was a teacher in k through 12 or whatever i'd be using these images all the time to 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 show funny ideas
4: yeah. inspire
1: kids have them have some funny have these funny pictures come up of minions doing you know whatever firing a catapult now we're going to talk about physics
4: and working on a math problem or something yeah yeah
1: and so so that you know i think that i would be constantly using these um as funny as funny images um and so so i think that that's going to be the real power and i think that it it it's actually scarier for many content creators because of that. Like it's like like if I w- I would not want to own stock photography. <laughs> right, right now, like any investment in stock photography is in big, big trouble. Um, but uh but anyway. Unless so, you're because,
4: gonna sell your library to the AI people, you know.
1: And well, they've already yeah, I give mean, them it all and, and you know, like yeah. it's like this is this is this picture. I did I did this picture a couple couple days ago. That's the kind of thing you see in stock photography all the time, like brain with wires or whatever, but it's better than almost most of the stock photography that I've that I've gotten mm-hmm. um to do that. And so so those are the kind of things that are there, and I think that I would um, I would look at that from that perspective, um, and it's going to get to a point where all this stuff is in three. You know, you can print it out. You can like I just think we're, I'm going to be able to eventually negotiate with the AI about what I what kind of stand I want, or a TV stand, or a table, or furniture, or whatever, and to say yeah, that's what I want, and that specialized thing is going to go out and get built and sent to me. You know, and I and it's not, and it's literally the way I want it. You know, uh, yeah. I don't think that it affects like I'm not gonna I still need you know, you're still gonna need specialists to come in if you're very good at what you do. This is this is the other thing, is if you're very good at what you do, you're not nobody you know, and, yeah, and you keep on innovating. The, quality of, no, the AI is not gonna get there anytime soon. Um it it it'll, it'll eventually make your job easier because you'll take all the little doodads that you've been doing and let the AI do that part and then you'll really work on it because it's but you really have to get past the skill and into the into the eye you know it's your vision of what's there that's important Mm -hmm. you know and being able to to tie that in and be able to be precise about it but it's going to be like another tool that we use but i think it's really as again we'll spend another hour on it we should probably think about doing an ai for educators like how to use ai effectively for educators is Mm -hmm. probably a subject that's a good saturday at some point yeah Yeah, Um, but I'm really excited about it. I know that I'm I'm in lots and lots of discussions. People talking about the ethics and the legality and the, you know, all those other things. But but when we get past that, we just have to realize that this is going to be something that is going to be really interesting, and it's going to make a lot of lives. If you're making content, you have to figure out how it affects you, but. You know, weavers were very upset when we started being able. You know, you know, the scribes got put out of business real quick. <laughs> you know, not not real quick, but over years, when the printing press started, and and weavers, you know, had a problem when they started bringing in larger things. The, you know, there's there's this technology has displaced people. You know, technology has displaced people for thousands and thousands of years, and so we you know we know that that's going to happen. We have to figure out what to do with that. If you don't want to be displaced, fighting it is not going to be the way to. <laughs> you know, is not the way to not be replaced. It's it's figuring out how to use it and what you're doing and uh, and leverage it and get ahead. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira,
0: Florida asks, how do you deal with an HDCP signal when you need a non-copy protected signal for switcher, et cetera? Thanks. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Well, the HDCP is basically the handshake on an HDMI uh, connector uh, that talks to the device that's supplying the signal. uh, Is this okay to uh, uh, to send it? And usually we use uh, an EDID or EDID device that sits in line there and fakes the device into thinking that it's sending it to a monitor or something else like that. You basically set it. It's called the sync Essentially, And uh, you set that signal and then you plug them together. And when the device goes looking for a handshake, it sees that uh, EDID information and says, okay, I'll send that through.
1: Yeah, there, there's a, um, a bug. We'll just call it a bug. Um, in a lot of uh, relatively inexpensive Chinese HDMI to SDI converters that come out of China, you know, the, the AVUE, AVUE has this bug. And that bug is, is that it's it it it's not really a bug. It, it's just that it does the handshake for HDMI, but SDI doesn't have HDCP. So if you convert from HDMI to, um, if you take one of these, they'll handshake as a HDCP, and then they will pass the signal over SDI um, out, and they're about eighty bucks, and um, they work. <laughs> so, so that'll, that'll just uh, on the way through. Um, so not that we ever had to do that. I mean, you know, a lot of times we end up with people who want to present things that are their own content and you have to make sure that you're not going to get caught up with a HTCP signal. Um, next question.
0: John Fultz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania asking keynote recently renamed instant alpha alpha, excuse me, to remove background. It's likely easier for non-video folks. Uh, go ahead, Dave.
4: Yeah, I get testify to that. It actually is easier to sort of comprehend. I'm just going to take out the background and if it's a generic color, then Instant Alpha always was able to take it out. Uh, I've been a Keynote user since the beginning, uh, when it was first released, and it's had this feature, I think, in the second iteration or so, and I've used it all the time. And I only recently went looking for Instant Alpha and found it's now called Remove Background. And I got the feeling that that makes more sense, that those of us who work in alpha channels and have graphic backgrounds Aren't the same people, and getting Keynote more adopted by having simpler understanding is going to move it forward. I think.
5: There you go, John. I wonder how many previous PowerPoint users got into Keynote and said, "Well, I can't use this because it doesn't have remove background." And how much of that played into changing the name of the the tool that's been there all along? It's quite possible. Um, would you say that the remove background on PowerPoint is as good as Keynote's? Uh, you can do some more fine-tuned things in PowerPoint, it is not mm-hmm. as good for a quick fix, and um, it doesn't generally get worse outcomes right. in PowerPoint. Yeah, I, I, that's what I felt, I just didn't know, as, as talking to an
1: expert of PowerPoint, or someone who knows a lot more about that than I do, I, I was curious, because I've, I've, that's been one of my problems of when I do PowerPoint stuff, it's, it's trying to um, figure that out. And I, I'm always like, oh, it's
5: not quite, and I can't quite get to where I am with Keynote.
4: It's um, yeah, PowerPoint's was, quite a bit, yeah, ahead, quite
5: a bit John. simpler or quite a bit, gotten quite a bit better in the last three years, I would say. Yeah, what were you going to say, Dave?
4: Well, I was going to say that it was, for me, easy to understand in Instant Alpha to drag the mouse a little bit and and sort of carve out the background. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get that with PowerPoint. But as John said, there's, there's other tweaks that you can use.
0: Next question. James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota, asked in a location scout along with doing a photo lidar type scan of the space What steps can you do to test audio? Is there a high-tech hand clap? I'll go ahead, Mitch. Essentially, uh, testing audio is called an RT60. There are many devices including apps for your phone uh, that will send an impulse out and then measure the reflections. I Go ahead, Dave.
4: I was taught by a very great engineer in audio that when I'm going to go into a room and test it for what it will sound like on a microphone, I just plug one ear. <laughs> and now I have a microphone. And the, uni- you know, the universal sort of sound is invisible to our both ears because we mentally tune it out. Our brain does that to figure out how far things are. And when you turn off one ear, you can actually hear what the room actually sounds like. Then you choose the microphone yeah. or the s- placing of the microphone according to what those sounds are. And that's a non-tech. Uh, there's no device to buy or scan that you have to do. It's simply right. a listen to the room differently, and then hear the room as it really is.
1: Yeah. The um, uh, what we what we do if we want to reproduce it or build that model later, um, is um, is to, uh, you you know, we, we cycle through the entire range. So you have a you hear this. Whoo- and, and you, you can run that and, and record it, and get some modeling from that. Other things that are done are modeling. for modeling, is recording a a, uh, a balloon pop or creating some large impulse. And if you have something that knows what that means. Um, those are some other ways to actually model what you're actually looking at there. Um, and there's some programs and some companies. And there's companies that actually rebuild those those kinds of things. Um, I, when I'm walking in, kind of a little like what Dave's talking about, I click a lot. So you'll see me, I'll walk in. The first thing I do when I'm going to go into a... And to me, I know what that means. Like if I do that, you'll see me just click while I walk into something. I'm doing that because I'm trying... I'm list, I just know what... That means to me about how roomy a room is. Um, and so I, the, I that tends to be what I do. Uh, next question.
0: Next question from Douglas Carmichael asking, after you've gotten the model geometry by whatever means, what software would you use for the actual pre-visualization process? Would it be a real-time engine like uh, Unreal Engine or Unity? Go ahead, Mark.
3: So in our case, we start out by taking the information, whether it's a design or an existing situation, and we put that into Autodesk's Revit, which is a building information modeling software. Then we go into 3DS Max to make it a virtual space to do a walkthrough or something. But that's because we're in the Autodesk world. Uh, For the stage stuff that we're starting to do, we probably will go to something like Unity or Unreal Engine just because it seems to be better suited and the cameras can talk to it.
1: In the past, um, I, I we've done a lot of it with Unity. Um, we are looking at using Unreal Engine for some of those things, and and we I've used mostly Cinema 4D. You could also use Blender. Um, those are all things that are viable to to build these things out and then get them into again back into Unreal uh, or Unity. Um, it'll be really interesting to see where Apple goes with it. I think that Apple was building a relationship with Unreal and and Epic kind of poured a lot of uh, water on that <laughs> with their with their lawsuits and and the question we really have is will apple as they go into arm arbr xr will they embrace unity or will they build their own tools and i don't think anybody any of us know what's going to happen next there no, but they're not going to use unreal so so that's i while i invest some in unreal i'm i worry that any investment i make there will end up not being as useful on the platform no, next question
0: Next in from James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota, your big flat monitors seem to be a weak point with sound treating a podcast studio. Would it make sense to create a setup design when being on air without being surrounded by uh, monitors?
1: Go ahead, Dave.
4: Well, that's an interesting question in the sense that uh, this problem was solved long before we had big flat monitors. Back in the day when you had an audio booth, it often had a window and you were cued outside the window in your nice, quiet room when you did your voice work. And the rejection of a dynamic mic with a cardioid shape allowed us to hear just the voice and not the window. So we're getting the same thing, and that's recommended here at Office Hours all the time. Use a dynamic microphone if you can, and a cheap one, and also use the cardioid pattern so that you're not hearing the other side of the microphone. Go ahead, Mitchell.
0: Uh, The other thing in uh, Dave's example is that a lot of those studios had windows that were angled down. Uh, So they were sort of, if you looked at them side on, they'd be like this. They'd be on an angle on either side because angle of incidence equals angle of reflectance. So um, if you have a big monitor in front of you, I have mine tilted, toed in ever so slightly, so the sound goes the other way instead of straight straight back at me and then back into the mic.
1: And for our um, folks on the back end, we're going to run a little over because we don't have a subject for the second hour. <laughs> so we're gonna, and we've got still some questions sitting here and not a ton of questions in education yet. So we're just going to run a little over. So um, just note that. Um, next question.
0: Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas, asking, what are the hottest tech toys for the Christmas season for kids and for adults?
1: I go ahead, Jesse.
3: Uh, Darius has been having so much fun with the phonograph. We are getting him an
5: audio cassette recorder.
1: <laughs> very good uh my my you know it's funny how we go into um a uh uh retro my my daughter wants a record player you know so to 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 use there um so that is a uh, so that we are taking a look at that the um i, I find that for me mid journey has been one of the things that i've been uh um really uh fascinated by um as far as sending out cards that as i've already shown you. Um, And and again, my daughter and and, and son both are making things for a lot of people. And I think that that's, I don't know, I'm I'm a real big fan of making stuff. (laughs) Go ahead, Nigel.
6: So we got for for the holidays uh, some real good speakers and an amp, And we're re-enjoying two-channel music like it was a new thing. (laughs) Uh, Next question.
0: Next question in from Jason Seip from Muravetta, California. I have a Blackmagic Hyperdeck Studio 12G 2015 with a bad capacitor. Is it worth the trouble to replace the individual capacitor, or should I look at replacing the entire unit with an upgrade? Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, A lot of those uh, devices uh, have surface-mounted technology, and Blackmagic is very good at doing that. Uh, It's not quite as easy as you think to be able to remove components from a circuit board where they're all
1: embedded into the uh, circuit board itself. I think the one thing to also look at is whether the um, uh, whether it has XLR in and out. Note that the new ones that Apple that, that Blackmagic sells do not have XLR in and outs, and if that 12G does, I can't remember whether the 12G had it or not. But the Pros definitely had it. Um, if they do, then that's a more complicated um thing because you may want those and so we have a little bit of both we have some of the brand new ones um i don't know and then we have the older ones and we use the older ones sometimes because we have those individual xlr in, in and outs next question
0: douglas Carmichael uh, asking the real-time vfx tool notch and there's a link to it uh was used for the queen plus adam lambert tour but the content was played back from a disguised gx2 media server has anyone
1: worked with one uh, the, 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 sky stuff is used in a lot of shows. So, so I mean, it's, it's, probably well known to the p- people who are building it about what it, what it should actually look like. Uh, not just something that I, I just really want to bring those guys in and take a look at because it looks like a really interesting app. Um, and, uh, and we just haven't been, you know, we haven't been able to quite line up with getting them in, but we're going to definitely bring them in and have them show it off. It, it looks pretty cool. Uh, next question.
0: Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts has a question. Um, My apologies, I have another question I'm going to read first. Uh, Jesse Kester in Glendale asked a question. Errors and omissions, it wasn't the star trying to sue the studio. It was a pair of fans who rented the movie on promises of a particular star.
6: Uh, Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, so the movie, by the way, is Yesterday which is a, a great film, and I'm sorry they didn't enjoy it. The fact that their favourite star wasn't in really a, a fairly insignificant scene in all of it uh, is a bit sad. And, and uh, I would just say if you'd ever seen Yesterday, it's worth watching with or without her. Uh, if you like the sort of thing about Time, is what we watched last night. It's one of our favourite movies. And if you still are going to movies based on the trailers, then you have a different problem. What was the who was the person that was missing? It was Anna de Arnis or something. There's a scene in Yesterday where uh, the key characters on the James Corden show. Yeah, she was the other guest on the James Corden show, and it's by the way, it's if you go to YouTube, you can find it. It's a deleted scene. Just of all the things, it it seemed like a very strange thing for me. But people are people. I just sorry. Okay,
1: and 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 she doesn't seem like the kind of actress that would. That would bo- have be bothered by it she's probably like, well i got my check
6: <laughs> like you know like it's you know like a, it's, it's not. if you go to imdb she's not even in the credits for the film
1: right right and and you know as someone who i've worked on lots of shots that don't make it into movies like i worked on the you know shots for weeks that got cut out on the editing floor and you just kind of like well that's what happens i mean you don't you know it, it, it's uh, you, you want to enjoy that moment and then move forward next question
0: Next one in from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Has anyone added actions to their Stream Deck specific to office hours, either as a producer or panelist?
5: Uh, Go ahead, John. I don't use my Stream Deck as much as I thought I would. One thing I do use it for frequently is my, I use the app Presentify for telestration. And I use that for shortcuts to change my brush and colors and that sort of thing. Go ahead, John.
2: I, well, it's, uh, I created it for Office Hours. It's been useful outside of Office Hours, and that is I have a button to autofocus, so I can just press it, and it focuses my camera for me. Uh, just requires a macro. Nice, nice. Uh, I think the last question for the first hour.
1: Uh, next question.
0: From Douglas Carmichael, in an article about Jean-Michael Le Jarre, it mentions that he has a Digico SD7 live console in his studio. When you want a studio console for studio work, considering the Digico consoles have no DAW control capability.
1: I think it probably has to do with Jean-Michel's uh, uh, choice of, of what he wants, you know, what he's comfortable with. Uh, is, is probably more has more to do with it. Go ahead, Dave.
4: Well, yeah, and uh, DAW can be added later. Recording things and, and capturing performances and tra- uh, tracking layers and all that stuff can be done on these other consoles and not go into a DAW right away. Uh, the habit of starting with DAW and always working in DAW is just recent. And it, John Bichal has been around for a very long time, so he's probably married to that box.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and then, now, are we... I don't. I haven't hosted the the education um, second hour for a while. Are we taking a break now, or are we keep moving, or how do we? Yeah. What's the plan? I know I threw everybody off because I said we're going to go over because we didn't. I was like, well, we don't have something specific.
4: Today we're going to take a look at what educators expect from Education Hour. We'll be asking them about their expectations for the show as we prepare future episodes. And if everyone stays with us through a little break, uh, we'll prepare a program and settle our new panelists into their chairs, and Education Hour starts in just a little while. Excellent.
2: I need to step away for
3: just one second. Chad, I'm going to stay on. I didn't click the question originally because I thought I'd have to go, but I can stay now.
5: I will be absent from the second hour, but I look forward to seeing it on YouTube.
7: Bye-bye.
4: Welcome to Education Hour. You know, we often have discussions during the week about what we think would be interesting to people who visit us for Education Hour, and we sometimes get input from our panelists and other office hours regulars. But today I thought we might put out a tray of virtual donuts and have a wider conversation about Education Hour itself. Uh, are you getting what you hope to see on Education Hour? Are we addressing the needs of our producers? Um, Are there other areas of focus going forward that would be interesting to our audience? And we're gonna have a sort of open discussion today, uh, take a lot of questions as they come up, and just see what kind of uh, future we have for Education Hour. John and I often meet together and and go over ideas and and try and read the tea leaves about what we think uh, people would be interested in and how it relates to training, teaching, and education. But sometimes we need more and wider input, and this is the opportunity for people who are visitors to our show and producers asking questions, put your questions to us, ask us uh, for things that you think should be part of Education Hour and things we might look into. Um, As well, of course, if there are any guests that you think you wanted to see on the show and you have some contact information for them, we'd love to get that information on the chat. So if uh, we get started here with the people who are already with us on the panel, uh, we'll go around the circle here and start with John and uh, have a little chat about what is the future of Education Hour?
5: Thanks, Dave. Uh, One thing that I'm curious about is our producers, which weeks are the most helpful to them, including is it something that, you know, the purpose of Education Hour is to help educators And that's any educator, whether it's someone who's in a classroom, which I think has traditionally been our our largest largest audience on Saturdays or corporate training like myself, or someone who just has to help someone else understand information. All of us are educators to some level. So I think my question for our producers is what has been especially helpful and what areas um, have been less helpful or less value added?
4: Mm -hmm. Anyone else? No? Okay. Let's take a couple of questions here and uh, start things off.
5: All right. Our first question comes from John Foltz in Selinsgrove, Pennsylvania. Edu protocols seem to be a form of gamification in education. What are the panelists' thoughts on these concepts?
4: Well, I'll start with you, John.
5: Yeah. Gamification is any attempt at um, adding complexity or adding challenge to a given task in order to trigger the uh, fun response in people. I would say, you know, the difference between a game and not a game is you add extra steps and extra rules in place. And I think some of the protocols in the edu protocols do help apply gamification to education, but gamification is much, much, much larger. And it can be everything uh, from as simple as, well, last time I was able to do this in 30 seconds, and now I wanna try to do it in 25, is a form of gamification. It's a way to motivate yourself to achieve a task um, by making it a little bit more challenging for yourself.
4: Okay, Harsheed?
7: I feel that uh, with having the uh, edge protocols a lot of things that kind of stuck out to me is repetition. So having a gamification aspect of it, and sometimes even as adults, we might not realize we're playing a game or we're doing something that's repetitive like that, but it's the rinse, repeat, uh, recycle sort of a uh, type of series of movement. So I think that with something that was introduced in a different um, a way to me that I'm not used to. It was a a refreshing uh topic f- for one and as well as what retained a- in the whole process, right? So, uh I think that this could be a good way to uh even for creators or anybody else to use this uh in other aspects.
4: Mhm. No, that's a good point. Is the repetition of it was part of the the suggestion of gamification, but in fact it was something teachers do all the time is go over a subject and then come back to that subject or expand on that subject as they repeat themselves alex
1: i i think that the the, the thing that i'm always caught up in when i get into the a lot of the different methodologies related to this is that um th- that one of the things that we're doing with trying to teach people things is give them something that we try to make it more fun to eat our vegetables <laughs> Like you know, like you know how do we how do we do that and and I think that, uh, you know, I, I was never, you know, I, I always took on, I, I've talked about this in the past, the dessert first, which is like, I'm just going to show you how it's used. And I think that um, my leaning is always, how do we get people doing whatever needs to be done and then not knowing how to do it with the tool and then being because it creates a now I need it, now I need these tools to to do it. And so, like, for instance, um, you know, one example that a school, and I, I just read this and I don't know where it came from. It's been years and years and years and years. They had a physics challenge that you are going to use a trebuchet to fire a trebuchet and you know, it had a limit like it could only be five feet by five feet by five feet or something like that. It had, to, you know, it couldn't make a huge trebuchet. They had to build one and they and they could only fire it once and so they so they had to do all the math to to figure that out and they learned and the students said they learned more math in in um because they would keep on asking the teacher well how do i figure this out how do i figure out the trajectory how do i figure out the forces how do i figure out and the teacher just kept on handing them what they needed as they needed it but it was a challenge that they were insufficient for when they were given the challenge and they had to solve the problem. And then they're asking for all the things that they, okay, I don't understand how to, how am I going to figure this out? And then, then all the discussions were around applied, an applied challenge for them. Rather than, you know, you're going to study something and write a paper or you're going, or we're now going to figure out how to drill, drill, you know, uh, calculate, you know, this math equation in, you just needed to use it. And, and um, I think that we've lost a lot of that. And I think a lot of it has to do with isolated, uh, we've isolated a lot of learning away from how, what that knowledge is actually useful for. And that makes it very hard to remember. And it makes it very not fun to learn. And, you know, and so I think that that's the kind of thing that I think that we need to think more about is how do we, uh, gamification is fine, but how do we, I think what I would say is application. You know, as human beings, we, and I've been saying this a little bit because I've really been thinking about it a lot. We learn, we've learned in the last hundred thousand years and from the time we're born to watch people ask questions, try it, repeat (laughs) like like that is the, that -hmm. is the fundamental way to uh, Mm -hmm. acquire knowledge. And we can, some people are better at theoretical stuff than others, but almost everybody is like our, literally our wiring is designed to watch, ask questions, try rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and just get better at things. And, and I think that I think school is kind of, um, fallen away from that a little bit. And um, I think that there's an opportunity to bring that back.
4: It occurred to me with people talking about gamification that nursery rhymes were a way of passing on information to children cautions about strangers or witches in the Mm -hmm. woods or any of these things. And they were practical applications of, and they were put into songs and poems and even little uh, dances and games. So we've always been trying to put it in a form that will stick with people. and, And memorization is just a modern thing where it's almost an industrial process. Mark Giuliani?
7: So th-
3: that's a very good point. So I'm going to bring radio into this. One of the ways to get a message to stick into someone's mind is by connecting an emotion with a thought. And that's done sometimes even by a bed of music. And once you get that repetition over and over again, that message will stick in that piece of to someone's mind. So you get a piece of real estate in someone's mind. And like Alex said you know you can sit there and have someone tell you something over and over and over again but until you actually try and do it a thousand questions won't come up that will come up once you say well how do i really get from here to here how do i really do the next step when i Really don't even know where the party is. So right. it, I think that whole process of going through and it, and let me tell you, it happens in architecture and the education of architects because they're told how to design something, they're told how buildings go together. But until they get out on the construction site and they see, you know, that person out there putting that beam together can't get their hand in there to get that wrench to that nut to tighten that. So all of this is all about experience and all about being able to do something yourself to come up with all those questions that have to be answered. John Pruitt. It's been a very long time
2: since I've been in a classroom teaching. Um, And I, I came through the education program and we did not have tools at our disposal like gamification Making learning fun really wasn't what they were teaching me in the 90s on how to teach children. And I really, while what Alex is saying is very true about uh, repetition and and engaging and challenging them and making them do things to learn. We didn't have things to gamify. We didn't understand how to make things fun for the kids. We kind of were just thrown out there and told to do it. And I really wish that we had had tools like this and concepts like this at our disposal in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Jones.
5: Yeah, A lot of cognitive science has been developed in the last especially 20 years, ever since we had the ability to do functional MRI studies, um, which allows us to study human brains while they're still alive. And so most of our research previous to, especially 2003 to 2005 or so, when those started being popular, was basically just um, guessing and based off of results. Our current educational system right now is somewhat... Incentivized to focus on testing scores, and there's a whole host of reasons for that. And every educational conversation eventually ends up in testing, just like every Wikipedia article ends up in philosophy. But so I'm trying to avoid just going into testing, but we now have a good strong understanding of cognitive science and what happens in human brains and so that's why many times educators use these tools is we're trying to build what's called cognitive schemas in children's brains because if you go to the architecture site with no understanding at all with no schema no structure then your brain doesn't know what it should be trying to learn. And so it's a delicate balance between the conceptual frameworks and the applicable frameworks and merging those two together and moving that information from short-term memory into long-term memory. And so we've developed these different systems and tools, some more effective than others, to try to do all of these things in order that human brains can learn. And part of it is we're just trying to jam so much more now into a school day than when I was a kid in the 90s. I did reading, writing, math, social studies, and science. And now there's a whole lot more curricula that we've added to that. So there's less time per topic to do those repetition in routes So we're trying to be more efficient by gaming the human brain, for lack of a better term, and making sure learning goes quickly and efficiently. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and, I, and I think one question is, do we need to do all that extra stuff?
1: And is it good, <laughs> I think, is the other question. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think, that, I think that that's the, I mean, we've... Um, we we started to use school as i mean I, I as a parent i mean as someone who went to school who who teach has taught at schools and who has, has kids in school right now uh you know i really feel like we are just filling their plate with a bunch of stuff that isn't going to be um that useful for them you know and and that we're now and it creates an enormous amount of stress it makes school not very fun you know with you know i personally have an opinion that after watching my kids and my experience as well is that the home, homework should never be graded. Like homework is, we're going to talk about things in class. Here's a bunch of things for you to research to make it better. Um, but we're not going to grade your homework. We're just going to tell you things you could do at home if you wanted to. But we're not going to, you know, like that is, if you're a smart kid, you don't have to hand in a bunch of stupid, you know, um, busy work. You know, related to this, you know, you'll, you'll show that you know it in class. You'll show that you know it in the test. You'll show that you know it in projects. Um, but most of those should be executed during the, during the day, during the day you know and you can you can do things at home if you need to but i i just watch the sheer volume that my kids get in homework you know and um you know they have other things i i grew up as someone who had other things to do when i got home you know that i didn't you know and mm-hmm. and those things were you know i was doing college level math to do trajectories and i was doing um you know a lot of other things but it wasn't that i wasn't mm-hmm. doing learning i just wasn't learn i just you know and and i think that i look when my when my kids come to come home and they have, uh, things that I don't know. I don't know the answer to I, uh, what i what I immediately go to is they probably don't need to know it either. <laughs> like, you know, like if, they, if I don't know it, they don't need to know it after 40 years, you know, like it probably isn't that applicable You know, to to their day-to-day life. Sure. And, and I, and I feel like, you know, for instance, I, you know, I read a lot of research papers and, uh, I am always amazed at how little, uh, people who write, edu- you know, government papers and research papers and, Educational papers have uh, used Strunk and White. Strunk and White is this little. My kids got it when they were eight. Mm-hmm. Like, welcome, you're eight o'clock, eight years old. This is the only thing you need to know from English. <laughs> like, like, like this is like if you leave with one thing that makes you better at English, it's this one little booklet that shows you uh, sentence structure. And um and and I we often talk about a Strunk and White pass. Like I'll write something and then I'll just go through and try to get rid of. I play a game. We talk about gamification, getting rid of every passive verb in the, like every is, every was, every, you know, like i be all that stuff I try to get rid of. And I try to restructure every sentence back into something that is active verbs and it's hard, you know, but it's, that's the thing, but that's a skill that obviously a lot of people don't have or, or, or don't try at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I think that we, again, I don't know if if, if a kid that doesn't hate, that hates English, um, I don't know if they need to have more than the structure. If 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 someone who hates math, I don't know if they need to know more than algebra. Like, I don't know if we need to keep on having them take trigonometry, ge- geometry, calculus classes if they're obviously not interested in it. You know, because they're not going to remember it. It's just that it's just we're just piling on something that they're not going to use, you know, rather than giving them more time back to do things that they are interested in. You know, and I think that that's the, you know, and I think that public schools have to figure out a way if we're talking about public schools, but anybody has to mm-hmm. figure out a way to structure things to to sort pe- what people want, rather than than constantly stuffing them stuffing their head with things they're never going to remember after that year.
4: Well, we're and preparing we'll, people for a world that doesn't yet exist, right? I mean, we're working with past ideas of how the world operates, and we're not pushing ourselves to. Cre- uh, I, I
1: think the worst part is we're just filling time. This world, we're just filling. Yeah. We're just filling up stuff that,
4: because
1: yeah. mm. you you're you you don't. I don't know. I I don't feel like you need the knowledge until you until you need it. Like what mm-hmm. what you need to figure out is you know knowing how to Google is way more important than oftentimes. Yeah, there you go. The elements of style. There it is.
4: Well, I'm that's there. that critical thinking question, isn't it? Uh, Roscoe Jones actually in the chat says science Olympiad had the um, kind of event and and many more where you take what you know and create a practical uh, explanation for it or uh, a science fair where you do a project as a team yeah. and and put something out there and demonstrate your knowledge. I mean, my, uh, and we, my, we don't have many opportunities for kids to demonstrate their knowledge or even, you know, university students to demonstrate what they know.
1: But they could. I mean, it just, it's just it's the structure we've given them to, to do that. Yeah. Like, we, we took home ec out. Home, you know, cooking is uh, chemistry that you can eat, you know, and we should be making things like, you know, and, and I guess I feel like I, you know, making, I, I personally, I mean, I've talked about this before, but I think all school, all K-12 through 12 should be making things and then learning tangentially how, why those things work. But, mm-hmm. you know, then we come out with kids that can actually cook and do things. I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theory about why we don't do that. Because it makes better consumers. consumers. We'll teach them how but, to
4: cut down trees and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well,
1: but I mean, but, but how to use wood and how to use and, and how to, I mean, anyway. So there's, I think that there's, yeah. and I think that those things are going to be more important as how kids learn becomes more diffuse. Like we're yeah. seeing a, a massive shift in where kids are going to school.
4: Well, uh, McLuhan called the City Cydia, is Classroom, which was a book he wrote for teachers about what's going to happen, and we're seeing it now. The city is teaching kids more than they're getting inside the classroom. John?
5: Yeah, I agree that I don't feel like generally grading homework is helpful, and uh, I always thought that I'd be the kind of parent with the kind of kids who just learn stuff quickly because school came easy for me. And the fact is not everyone has those kids not every brain is the same and my children um, are bright caring children who need to do their homework or else they don't retain the information and so um, is that the solution for every child no but one of our problems with the educational system is we've designed a one-size-fits-all approach to different brains and so for my kids they need that homework in fact we actually assign them more homework the trick is trying to um, they don't learn well the way the teacher teaches always. And so I have to, uh, thankfully I understand how how people learn. So I have to kind of restructure the training for my kids for their math. And it's getting to the point where they're getting into the math that you don't use every day. Like who cares what an isosceles triangle is? Um, I'm sure it matters to somebody, but it doesn't matter to me or them. And it's harder for me to be motivated to to do that reinforcement with them. Um, But that's my kids and it's different than someone else's. I I have a
4: story I tell quite a lot uh, about being a a project manager on a major Defense Department program. And we were were solving a problem and making simulator dials on an aircraft move smoothly. And uh, one of my programmers uh, almost had to do an in-service with all the other programmers. We had about six of them. And they were all having trouble figuring out how to make this work. And this woman we had as our programmer said, well, it's just a quadratic. And they all gave her this blank look, because they understood the term. They weren't sure how it applied to this particular problem. And she went to the whiteboard and said, okay, here's the quadratic, and you plug in this figure here, and then the machine, of course, these are computers, so they'll calculate what it is, and the position will just move dramatically from one place to the other quite smoothly. And she showed how she'd done it on one of her instruments, and they all adopted this, oh, we're using quadratics, I get it now. And then they, they went to work, and everything came out just beautifully at the end. But to remind somebody who was in his mid-20s or early 30s that they haven't used a quadratic in 20 years, uh, well, yeah, because this was the first time they'd ever seen an actual explanation that included it. So I think that's also uh, necessary is to say, where are you going to use this information? And this is why you need to know it. So I'm going to move to the next question here.
5: Oh, can't hear you. muted. Uh, Next question is from Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. What are your thoughts about accelerated learning technology for individuals such as language learning or memorization? How do you think chatting with an AI based expert could help?
4: Oh, you've started something here. Uh, We're all going to talk AI for 10 minutes here. Go ahead, Alex, you start.
1: Well, I think that I think that the I think AI is going to make a big difference in education in general. <laughs> I think you're going to end up with a lot of things. I think that in the we talked about it a little bit before um, in the last hour, but just the teachers being able to put images that inspire the kids up that they they made out of Midjourney is is going to be something that's you know not educational, but it is going to be um, things that uh, are um that that get kids excited about stuff and can be fun images that's the first step um you know doing those things so you know again i have a i did i did something that i talked about earlier with the minions crossing the crossing the um uh the, the delaware, delaware. Yeah. Yeah. and i've been doing this thing where i go through mid-journey i'm doing minions through history and so i have minions on dinosaurs and i have minions running you know i have all these like pictures of it that i'm just having fun with and as a teacher i could see myself just using deciding its minions or deciding it's something else. It happens to be that a, that Midjourney does minions really well. So so it, it it's so. Um, but but I could also see one of the things that I've already started using with office hours is I'll go up to ChatGPT and I'll go uh, give me uh, a bunch of r- tell me how W Vision works. Not because I don't know it, because it's that it will say things that are concise and it will put things together. And, oh yeah, it's a good way to say that. You know, or, or it's, I didn't I didn't think about that. Or I'll ask it to ask me a bunch of questions as a teacher. I, it'll ask me, I'll say, ask, you know, 20 questions about this subject. And then that lets me think about things that I want to put in, like, oh, I want to answer that question. I don't need to cover this. So I find it as a kind of a co-pilot, I find it to be really interesting. Um, the, um, uh, you know, I think that you could get into a position where ChatGPT or something else, or something that has voice, you know, text to voice, could be talking to you. And so a lot of times in the intercombio style of I could talk to something and it would talk back to me if I was learning a language could be pretty, in a pretty interesting way for it to work that allows us to not have to have a human on the other side every single time we want to try to, you know, just have simple conversations. And so I think that there, there's a lot of them. I, I'm i not a big fan of memorization, except for the fact that I think that there are, um certain things I'm really glad I memorized. You know, um, you know, the the, the number one the m- number one most useful thing that I memorized when I was a kid was my times tables. And we we had a race to talk about gamification who could do it the fastest, you know, literally do the whole times table up to 12 times 12. And that is the one skill that I use every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. I came from school, like if someone asked me, like, what did you learn? Being able to do that in my head. Even um, with
4: recipes, yes. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah, yeah. You just, you're able to, you know, cut through just simple math really fast.
4: Fractions and multiplication. Yeah, totally memorized. Yeah. Um, Chris Clark has reminded us that most adult learning involves remembering, reinterpreting and reorganizing things we already know. John?
5: Yes. And as far as accelerated learning technologies, I think it's very easy for us to confuse achievement with learning. Uh, in other words, I passed a level on an app and now I've learned that thing. And that is not true. Learning happens when you're able to take the information that you've encoded into your learn- long-term memory and apply it to real life. And for that, I think these AI tools can be incredibly helpful because instead of just re- re-saying rote phrases like in language learning you can actually interact with a language model in that native language and it could analyze your rate of speech your dialect and your accent if it was trained well enough and that can give you the kind of feedback you need to say can i do this practically in a way that forces your brain to create new information and generate new ideas and thoughts from what you've learned previously instead of just repeating what you've heard
4: What I've heard people talk about in ChatGPT is the fact that it can remember the previous part of a conversation and bring that back. You can modify your request on a second or third question and it'll remember what you originally asked. And I think that's that's like language—what uh, do they call it?—natural language they want to program into these things. And if they get very good with natural language, uh, it would be a tutor system. It would be a way of taking material they need to work on and maybe repeat or maybe even practice. And and language labs are just this sort of thing where you record yourself saying something and then the, the machine plays it back and compares that with what's right, and then you learn to change your intonation. Well in the sense that AI is already a, a natural language engine, it might actually be good for that sort of learning. Uh, I can think of other repetitions, such as uh, you know, pilots have to inspect the aircraft and they have a 200-point a list that they have to go through in their head, and they have to memorize this thing uh, in order to climb into their plane and fly. And this would be also a way of getting that practice on a laptop rather than uh, doing it with aircraft in person. Uh, John Pewitt next. The one concern I have with using something
2: like uh, chat AIs or things like that for education purposes is we cannot understand how the models work once they're complex enough. We do not have a way to understand. Uh, you know, how the connections have been made and and we can't be predictive in what the uh, bots are going to say, uh, which is not normally a problem. But if you have a clever child who is deliberately malicious, you can make chatbots do things that you would not want them to do. And a human would recognize, whereas a dumb machine will just simply execute. So we can't replace teachers with AIs, at least not yet. But I think that um, as a supplement, as long as the teachers are paying attention (laughs) and not using it to check out of the classroom, uh, then I think it's a good
4: tool. There was an experiment run in the early 80s with um, Online and it was text-based so it wasn't a voice or an interaction that was human, but uh, It was a text-based interface for psychology Uh, You could have a therapist at the other end of the line and it wasn't a person it was a computer and it was programmed to see um, Key words that are related to how you're feeling or what you're having trouble with and uh, They were pretty successful in giving people self-confidence about their problem. Being able to reflect to a device what your problem is helped you figure out what your solution was. And the the difficulty psychologists had with it is that psychology is not meant to give you the answer, it's to help you find the answer. And teachers are often doing that too. They're not necessarily going to give you the answer, they're going to help you find the answer. But it was not as uh, elegant, I guess, uh, a way of doing things because the same sort of pattern existed in the machine, and you were almost having to fit yourself into the pattern to get any good results from it. And this was a concern I had about chat GPT when I first saw people talking about it. I was afraid it was teaching us how to ask the questions in a certain way to get answers we thought we understood. So I think there can be, like you're saying, John, uh, there can be a downside to this in that someone gets a, a new skill, which is how to detect a uh, AI's interactions or how to conform your own behavior to suit the AI. And of course, as John Pretto's is telling us, he's ready to be the, uh, the pet of an AI system. Well, Let's move to the next question.
1: The only thing oh, I'll so say, go ahead. I was going to say one one thing about thing. That is, is that I dance with the AI all the time. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to not do it, I'm trying to figure out how it wants to get information. So as a user, uh, I'm not, I'm just trying to figure out what language is talking, what, how, what, what language is it talking in and how do I speak that language? And so all of my tests are all related you know, related to that. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay, the next question is?
5: Next question is from Bob Sturdevant from San Antonio. I've been thinking over the past years is the lack of how to learn something without better remembering tools. I run into the learning curve, but have a bigger problem with the remembering curve. What techniques do you use to teach remembering?
4: You start us off, John. So. Uh,
5: oh, sorry. Uh, which we John? got
4: two Johns. I'll take John <laughs> Snyder first. Sorry about that. It's my fault.
5: Um, thanks Dave. Sorry, John. Uh, basically your, the act of remembering is. Reinforcing your brain wiring, but the connections between neurons and how you do that is you first connect new information to old information. So if you can relate something new, you've learned to something in the past. It'll help you um, walk that same pathway more often. Use space repetition. So repeat information over a long period of time uh, that will again reinforce that pathway use active recall force yourself to try to remember something remember something without aid so don't look at your notes when you quiz yourself confidence based assessment is ask yourself how confident am i in this information and if you're not confident but you get the answer right that means that you need to um, continue to repeat it if you're confident and you get the answer wrong it means you need to restart your learning path those three practices end up combining together into something called deliberate practice. So intentionally practicing and looking at feedback on yourself will help you remember things.
4: Now, John it.
2: Sorry about that. Um, so I'm not a professional educator these days, but in my role as lead engineer, I have to teach people how to use our tools. And so my tricks for doing that is I kind of like to throw my junior engineers into the deep end. And so I will put them in front of a console and on Zoom and say, "Okay, show me what you want to do." And then as they're making mistakes, I'm like, "I will gently prod them to the right course." But I, I I may even show them the first time. You know, this is how I do it. It's not the only way to do it. If you find a way that works better for you, do it your way. Now that I've shown you, you show me how to do it the next time. And then I have them repeat it and repeat it until they can do it smoothly. And that's how I do it, how I make it interesting and keep them engaged. I also make sure that that's the way that they learn, that that's their learning style. Because not everybody, some people prefer to read, in which case I can point them at the manuals. But I personally dive into stuff. I I teach myself how to do this. And it, it it's kind of... You know that's my learning style is to just go in there and do things mm. uh so that's that's what uh i how I teach and how i uh learn oh okay Alex
1: I make no attempt to remember anything <laughs> so so like like I, I write things down, I know where I refer to them I keep track i I put things in notes i have no i have my notes i probably add ten notes a day um to things that i can search uh, i remember things that i use often and i forget things that i don't use very often and i don't care like i just you know like i don't want to fill up my head with a bunch of stuff trying to remember it i don't i just put it somewhere that it needs to be or i have a support sometimes a support system of people around me that know what it is but um you know a lot of times i'm not i don't make any i think that the we don't we don't need to remember everything you know like and so i don't i don't make any attempt to to do that
4: sure yeah I try and have my assistant do all that, so I just think John I, Snyder? I just find it clutters up my
1: head it clutters up my head trying to remember everything if I just let it I can think faster if I, if I just grab onto the things that I need. I know where to find them, mm. but
5: I don't know, necessarily know where they are
4: yeah there's some some risks involved in that, but anyway, John Snyder
5: Yeah, just a quick word on on learning styles there's no hard evidence that learning styles are an effective way of educating others. It helps people feel like they learned or it helps them feel like um they're more confident than they should be. Uh, All the evidence-based practices are leading us away from using especially the four learning styles, visual, audio, kinetic, and um, I forget what the fourth one was.
4: Oh, kinetic is physical, yes, okay, yeah. All right, let's go to the next question then.
5: Our next question is from Jason Seip from Marietta, California. Many high school and college students heavily utilize chat GPT to write essays. What should educators do to harness and utilize this technology alongside their students in the classroom?
4: This is part of the larger discussion in almost every area people writing uh, reports for the government or whatever, and, uh, using chat GPT to try and flesh out things and make them look substantial. Um, I, I think it's an emerging thing that, that we're all going to have to see more of what it does to what we ask of it, and then see whether or not there should be maybe some, what are we going to call them, um, bear, uh, on the roads, what do you have, these guardrails, there we go, I'm thinking about guardrails, um, that keep us from veering off and getting into uh, immorality and other things that that chat GPT may be used for. Uh, we'll start with John Snyder.
5: What I would do if I was a teacher in a classroom is I would allow my students to use ChatGPT and I would have a conversation about how it's not necessarily a reliable source of information. Um, After that, I would have the actual assignment be to give a presentation about the information in class where your peers can ask you questions because the ability to present and respond to questions I think is a much more valuable skill set than the ability to write a paper in today's modern world.
3: Mark Giuliani. So, in the not too distant futures, teachers will take the answers students have given them, feed them into Chat GPT, and say, "Who wrote this?" And Chat GPT will say, "I wrote this ten minutes ago."
4: There are actual websites that college professors use to look for plagiarism, and they're quite comprehensive, that they can scan a document, maybe just four paragraphs from some paper and find on the web where that original thing was and whether the person just cut and pasted it in or not. And this has found some really significant cheating going on at some of the lower colleges. John Pewitt. So I really like
2: what John Snyder had to say uh, because it really played into what I was thinking about. You need to to demonstrate that stu- Turning in a paper doesn't really demonstrate that you know, have the knowledge and that you understand what you wrote. What it demonstrates is that you can take things other people have written, put connecting sentences between them and put quotes around them and turn that in. Um, in order to, to actually under, show that you understand it, you need to, to answer questions from people. And having your fellow students do it is a great way for them to learn and you to learn, because one of the ways that we learn the best is a lot of us by teaching. The other thing, uh, there are websites out there that can, uh, to go off of what Mark was saying, uh, that can actually analyze uh, visual uh, documents or written documents to determine if an AI wrote them and they have a high degree of success. So I think right now, and it's going to be that way for a little while, it'll probably not be that way for long, the, the AIs, the way they write is distinctive and very different from what a high school or college age student would write on their own.
4: And, and teachers, teachers get used to a student and they know that that's not their voice. Uh, I've seen that happen where they look at this and go, this isn't Dave. This is somebody else written this. Yeah, are you done, John? Or you got more? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, you're done, John. Okay, Uh, Mark Giuliani. So it's interesting in architecture school to get a master's in
3: architecture. It takes two. Your final years, two semesters. The first semester is a report written about what your project's going to be. So you have to do the investigation on the usage of. If it's a building, a building. And then the second semester is spent doing the f- designing the floor plans, the facade, the elevations, then the sections. So you get a full year of demonstrating you really know the knowledge. Not only can you put the pieces together, as John said, but you also have to show it on paper and then stand up and present it in front of six professional architects and have them basically rip it apart in front of you. And you have to be able to answer those questions.
4: I'm reminded that when Wikipedia first appeared, uh, there were bans on you know quoting from it, and it was deemed to be an unreliable source because it was open source. And that seems to have faded away, that yes, you might cite Wikipedia, this came from Wikipedia, but the citations in Wikipedia started to become more reliable, and uh, some of the information was now acceptable, as high school students or college students could, could quote from it. Um, next question.
5: Our next question comes from Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. Does a liberal arts education fit the needs of students today?
4: And John Pruitt will
2: start us off. So I am represent this question very well as I am in a highly technical career. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and I do cybersecurity. So, yes, I think a liberal arts degree in, in certain circumstances, I'm not saying it's the best for everybody, but for the right student, I think it's a, a very good option. Uh, it gives me soft skills that have helped me move my career forward. Uh, I'm better able to relate to people because of the the humanities that I've studied. I have a little bit more context, and this is coming. Kind of the part of the reason why I have a degree in anthropology is, I didn't really understand other people growing up. And so I figured, well, I'm failing in physics. Let me find something that will work for me. And, ah, studying people to understand how to work with them. Well, psychology is not really my mindset. And I really don't want more math. So sociology's out. Let's go with anthropology. And that was kind of my thoughts. And that's why I went that way. And uh, interestingly enough, Chapel Hill did not offer a science degree in anthropology. So we had to go with the Bachelor of Arts. And I've since developed my career and relied heavily on what I've learned. And that's why I think a Bachelor of Arts is a fine degree to have.
4: It's, it's often said that Bachelor of Arts in, in a liberal arts education has, at its basis, critical thinking. And being able to associate different things and see the linkages or the, the buttons that connect these things together. And maybe that's the, the power of the liberal arts is that when you have a broad knowledge and a more generalized interpretation of reality, uh, you're better able to navigate within it. Um, just asking you, John Pruitt, what made you go into cybersecurity? Well, I, I worked in IT for a long time
2: uh, after uh, college. I was kind of drifting around. Education wasn't really my thing. Uh, I kind of, I kind of went that way because I was pushed that way by my family. Um, and then I ended up in working with computers because I, I really have liked computers. I have a passion for computers. Uh, and about seven or eight years ago, uh, I was my job was being outsourced, and one of my colleagues had interviewed with the current company that I'm at. They didn't like him, but but he suggested me because I was a software packager and they mm. were looking for someone that had software packaging skills. And I've always had a passion for cybersecurity. And in addition to the TVs, once I learned about it, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not, I'm sorry, not TVs, computers, mm-hmm. um, because, uh, cybersecurity is just so fa- I'm not a, I'm not a red team person. I don't like hacking. I'm not a, I'm not a hacker at heart, heart. no, yeah. but I love playing defense. I love it. It's just so much fun and so much challenging. It's more challenging than being on the blue team. Blue team is easy because we're dumb humans and we can make lots of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Red
3: team is hard. I mean, blue team is hard. Yeah, Mark uh, Giuliani, quickly. So I thought I would just uh, put this question to chat GPT. And the last paragraph, I won't read the whole thing. The last paragraph says Overall, a liberal arts education provides students with a well rounded education that helps them develop a broad range of skills that are valuable
4: in many different careers. There we go. Next question, please.
5: Our next question comes from Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What's the ideal education topic to bring in a specialist or guest speaker? That is topics that require and attract interest from outside the current EDU panel.
4: Well, it's been suggested by Chris Clark that we bring in someone who's uh, very knowledgeable about storytelling. And that they are a good storyteller, and that the, how that connects to education. So that's probably a, an ideal topic to bring in a specialist there. Uh, we'll take any idea, I guess, for any specialist that someone wants to offer us uh, for this. You know, this hour. Uh, one of our difficulties in having guests is that there's probably not enough time in an hour to cover some of the subjects that our experts have. Uh, John Snyder.
5: I think some of the technical experts we have in office hours would be fantastic guests to help teachers understand um, complex technical topics. Like, for example, John, your expertise in cybersecurity, how does that apply to a teacher who's trying to teach her kids uh, logging in or his kids logging in and creating a password? And why is that important? And how do we communicate that in a way that the teacher understands the importance of it so they can pass down the important parts and not just a you need 18 characters, two symbols, and a number.
3: Mark Giuliani. So I think the, I will second you, the storytelling is an important, uh, something important to have to communicate to people. And when I look back at my education and look at who was the most influential, it was those people that could get up and communicate well and tell stories well. And I find myself as an architect having to describe to clients how, they, we progressed through this timeline of sitting down and doing a, meet, a needs analysis, determining what the user groups needed, and that came up with this result. You need to tell a story. You need to walk them through that timeline. And that, is, that will work and help everybody in multiple careers and really focus people on the ability to communicate and, and get a point across to the, the intended audience.
7: Mm-hmm. I I agree on this. And as far as educational um, guests and people that could assist with this, uh, I would say somebody, let's say in the psychology space, even uh, Georgia Dow was one that we spoke about in the past. And there are others as as far as workflows. And I would like to know more workflows. So audio description, for example, is one idea that I have, but how do we take something in an educational fashion to you know, to have a presentation that anybody could pick up and then give that package deal. So, uh um, John mentioned he's a software packaging specialist, as I say. But how do you take a package of material as a presentation, even in education fashion, and give a person the deliverables? So sometimes we do have issues with products. We might choose to do, let's say, a signature, and the website might not be accessible, and I'm not sure what documentation is being trying to be portrayed. So uh, I I know that we could probably get some guests to help us with, let's say PDF tagging uh, that makes a PDF uh, file accessible throughout. So just having that practice and then in your workspace, using that so even if you're an architect, if you are a computer software engineer, you're educator. It doesn't make a difference in career fashion, but it helps our brain to retain exactly what sh- what's going to be upcoming. Because as we know, ChatGPT and some of these other products are already kind of knocking at the door. But we already have been doing machine learning as we have. And you know, language-based learning is coming up mm-hmm. on the horizon. So let's see where we go with all of this.
4: Thank you. Next question.
5: Our next question is from Peter Belvin in Houston, Texas. With hindsight in hand, which past teachers do you recognize now as being those that were most effective in helping you learn the required subject material and what techniques did they use to achieve that result?
4: Ooh, that's a toughie. I've learned so much from so many different teachers. Um, I'm gonna say writing um, I think I was in grade eight when I thought I was a good writer. And uh, one of the teachers I had in that, in English class we have, um, challenged me, I think, to say, well, you know, you're are you just imitating what you understood to be good writing, or are you actually originally writing good things? And he moved me out of my safe area. You know, I thought, I've read enough books, I know how writing works. And then he taught me that there's more to writing than that. And I finally got into the thing of, well, writing is actually a lot a deeper water than I was treading water in. And uh, that pointed me in the right direction. It's helped my career ever since. Uh, we'll go to Mark Giuliani. I think the teachers that
3: were most inspirational were those that communicated well, told stories, but also involved you in the process of learning. So w- w- there were many times when there'd be role-playing where I remember one class we had, everyone had, represented a different country in the United Nations and subjects were brought up and you got to see all the different perspectives that those different countries had to look at things and decide which way to vote on something. So it's I think it's about bringing the student into it and you know, finding out what is in it for them. What are they gonna take away from this and how is it gonna better their life?
4: John Snyder.
5: Dr. Galen Johnson was my church history and philosophy professor in college. And he would take all the readings and split them up amongst the students. And each day a student taught taught the class. And he just, all he did was facilitate the conversation and discussion. And he probed us to make us think for more. And it was really helpful in my understanding of how to think as well as uh, church history.
4: And John Pewitt. When I was in
2: college, uh, going back to get my teaching certificate, I spent some time, I had to take some history classes. And the history teacher there uh, for my uh, African-American history uh, class was, I would just go to her office and sit and chat with her for hours. And that was what I found to be the most Helpful. It helped me think through some of my thoughts, challenged me in some of my positions, and it was just a very good open dialogue to have with her.
4: That's an important part of education is actually understanding your students. So, yeah, those kind of interactions are are going to be an amplifier of what goes on in learning. John Snyder?
5: I also just wanted to say, I think I've learned more in the last year from Dr. Chris Clark here on the panel than almost anybody else, especially about education.
4: Okay. With that, we'll move to the next question. We're going a little over because uh, we got pushed off a little bit, but I'm just going to take three more, I think. You're muted, John. Sorry about that. You're too, you're too quick D- on the button, Douglas there. Carmichael. Yes.
5: We talk about technology X or product Y, but what's the secret to creating healthy environments where not only learning can take place, but students feel safe, secure, and comfortable?
4: I'm not sure there's a secret to it, and healthy environments are constructed both by the people who have uh, that run the institution, administer it, and also by the attitudes of of. Teachers and the students themselves, so students can create their own safety uh, as well. But but I'm not an expert in that kind of area, and I don't believe there's sort of a secret. Uh, but you do want them to feel safe, secure, and comfortable. So John, you got an idea? Um, People learn Snyder.
5: learn best when they can achieve the flow state, uh, which was developed and understood by Mihai Chiksentmihai, who was a Polish uh, psychologist. And basically, you have three conditions for flow: you need instant feedback. Uh, challenging, um, a balance between opportunity and capacity. So it needs to be difficult for you, but not unachievable. And you need to have clear goals.
2: And John Pruitt. I think being safe in the classroom is sometimes, sometimes at odds with what the classroom is, is the teachers are required to do. Um, and what, what I'm saying, the reason why I'm saying this is teachers are mandatory reporters, a lot of students especially those that are undergoing abuse or neglect or something like that, really don't necessarily want their their parents or other caretakers to get in, into trouble for what the children is getting. And so they, they feel stressed at home and they feel stressed at school for very different reasons. And I'm not sure the teacher... In those situations, and I'm talking about very specific situations here, can do their job and make the child feel safe. They can make the child safe, but that's a different thing from feeling safe.
4: There's a phrase uh, I drew from uh, an author of the 20s, um, Vera Brittain who said, learning is a naturally uncomfortable experience and most people prefer to be comfortable. And so you can't always be secure or comfortable, but you can make obvious safety. Uh, When we talk about a technology or a product, uh, I believe that a lot of administrators take into account whether or not this puts a person at risk or makes them feel uncomfortable. So I think they're observing that to some degree, but there, there are so many Products, I guess I'll say, that it's really hard to keep track and and it's really hard to administer that stuff. Next question.
5: Our next question is from James Babbitt in San Diego. Could you discuss how ChatGPT is more like a search engine than an AI?
4: Thankfully, John Pruitt's going to help us here. So, ChatGPT, basically,
2: as I understand it, is a neural learning algorithm that has a huge database of of stuff that is crawled throughout the web. And so when you ask it a question, it combs through the database almost instantaneously to create its answers, picking from things that it finds, its neural algorithms have found to be most relevant uh, to provide the answer. And so that's why it's functioning in a way, it's not creating original content in a way, uh, it, it, it's kind of like what we do subconsciously, taking what we've learned over the years, putting it together in a unique fashion and and surfacing it to you. It's just doing it with a database that is vastly bigger than what we consciously have available to us. Subconsciously is another matter.
4: Well, that brings us to our next question. So let's hear from that.
5: Our last question is again from Douglas Carmichael, how can you assist students who have suffered trauma in their lives to feel secure in a learning environment?
4: Trauma is a very difficult thing to understand. And the reason I know this with such confidence is that I live with an expert who is an expert in this. My wife is a clinical psychologist with expertise in trauma and small children and i'll tell you it's not easy to understand how to deal with that i also have not revealing any secrets here but i have a niece who suffered a serious trauma when she was three or four years old she's now about nine and she's going to a school that is actually run by the native band and a native band in canada automatically has to deal with child trauma and so they have programs in it that are both built to handle the trauma the kid has experienced and give them strategies for management. And they do it with the entire school, not just kid by kid. They have generic activities that they do where they go out and they do things in the woods or they do things and, and build things as a group and work as a community. Uh, and they even take care of the school. So it's a it's a whole community that has to support uh, children who have been traumatized. And not all teachers are clear on what the nature of trauma is, and revisiting trauma is not always a good idea. There's a thing called re-traumatizing by asking people to talk about their trauma, and it just runs them through it one more time. And people who do PTSD uh, work have learned this a long time ago that you can't you can't quite get a person to feel comfortable if you ask them to leap off the cliff again. So, in the sense that it's a tricky subject, and it's still emerging. It's a bit well like what we've been learning about teaching in general or cognitive understanding. It's emerging slowly. But I don't know if you can assist a student directly without expert help at the top levels, people who have a background in this area. John?
5: Yeah, I was just going to add on to that, Dave, I think for teachers, one of the most important things is recognizing when something's beyond what we can help with, and having a strong network that we can re- reference people to, because recognizing trauma and getting the person to someone who can help them is far more valuable than almost anything else we can do in those states, stations.
4: That closes us up for today i'm going to give a big thank you to all those people who are submitting questions today and every day you're the community who make these discussions possible and as well i'd like to acknowledge all the people who volunteer every single day to operate the integrated systems of office hours and after hours and recognize their dedication we thank you along with today's panelists who provided really valuable insight and thanks panelists. It was really interesting conversation. Uh, Join us again next week. John Snyder will show us four ways to draw on a screen. And I want to remind people there's always after hours all day and all night, ready to lend a hand in any kind of technical or online issues you might have. After hours can get you a quick answer most of the time uh, to nearly any technical question you might have. And for teachers, it's a nice resource to be able to just get quick answers for something that you're going to probably have to deal with tomorrow. So, for that, catch us again next week in Education Hour. Thank you, everybody. That was really fun. Happy holidays. Yes, all the best to you and yours. Thank you for hosting. It was a great show.
2: Now, I have to go eat, or my blood sugars will get too low. There you go.
4: My second breakfast awaits me.
5: Thanks, Dave, for covering me for me today. Really appreciate you stepping in. Take
4: take care, says Harshid, to everybody on the panel.
7: Telestrating next week.
4: Mm -hmm. Brilliant, Harshid. Yeah, I want to see Harshid's telestrating. illustrating. That would be fun. <laughs> if it's as crazy as Alex's, then, you know, probably makes sense.
5: Have a great week.
3: See you all
4: later. You see too. Time. We'll see you next Saturday.
3: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.